0: Welcome to It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode number eight, Promoting Wrestling. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. My name is Ken Zimmerman Jr. and this is the podcast dedicated to the history of professional wrestling between 1870 and 1920, although we sometimes stretch into the 1930s. In this episode, I will be talking about the development of the promotional system in the 19-teens and the early 1920s. But first, I wanted to do an update. And the first part of the update is... This will be a solo episode. My son showed up yesterday ready to record the podcast, but he was obviously very sick, and I didn't want to, in this era of COVID, I didn't want to take a chance that he had something serious when he needed, he should have been home resting, and instead had come here to do the podcast with me, so I sent him home and told him, I've done solo episodes before, I'll probably have to do a couple in the future, So it's no big deal. But he will be rejoining me for the next episode on September 12th and for the foreseeable future. And one of the reasons I wanted him involved with this is because he is not a wrestling fan. So he was looking at professional wrestling through fresh eyes. And I'm kind of showing him the things that I really liked when I was a kid and getting his feedback on it from a the perspective of someone who's young. A lot of young people are not wrestling fans anymore. One of the scary things about professional wrestling today is most of the fans are my age or older, so early 50s on into their 60s and their 70s. And the few young fans seem to be the really super smart fans and it's a that's a very small group of people. But before I jump into the content of this week's show. As I said, I wanted to give an update on the project I've been working on for almost a whole year now. So when I started this project, I thought it was going to be three to six months and that I would have the book done on the history of the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship. And it was not a project I was looking to jump into because I knew the title history was not linear. There were Lots of conflicting information out there. And I knew it wasn't going to be an easy thing to establish a true timeline for the championship. And the project also turned out to be much bigger than I had imagined. I, I thought it was going to be, like I said, three to six months. And it it could be take me the whole year to finish this. Right now, I want to get the book out before Christmas. Uh, I think I can do it. But it is... There's a lot more to this than I thought. The good news is I believe I have a pretty definitive timeline. It differs a little bit from the timelines in the past, but I think without question we can trace the lineage of the championship from Evan Strangler Lewis's reign up until when Joe Stecker defeats Charlie Cutler. The rest of it is either gray area or promotional tactics. I don't really consider them part of the title, and I'll explain why in the book. But I think we have got a pretty good timeline. One of the challenges with this project was a lot of my readers are interested in the time when a lot of legitimate contests occurred, and they want to read about wrestlers wrestling legitimate contests. One of the things I found with the American Heavyweight Wrestling Championship is a lot of the matches were worked even before I uh, realized. So as I've said from the very beginning, the reason this podcast is named, it was almost real, is because from the very beginning of professional wrestling in this country in the 1860s, wrestlers worked matches. Between 1860 and 1915, a lot of those matches were contests. The majority were probably contests. But there was also a lot of working going on as well. And some of that will be explained with the development of the promotional system today. But going into this, some of the matches that I had thought before were worked, I now, th- I, I'm sorry, some of the matches I had thought before were contests or shoots, I actually believe were worked now. And I explained why I believe that. But we do have quite a few legitimate contests we're covering in this book. But there, there's more work matches than I had imagined. So with that update let's just jump into this week's show. This is probably going to be a little shorter episode since I am doing it solo and I don't have my son to ask me questions at times to slow things up and that. But I think you'll find the information helpful and I the reason I wrote, it. this is just an outgrowth of the post I wrote a couple weeks ago called Promoting Wrestling and the reason I wrote this that post that I'm doing this podcast is one of the wrestling history podcasts I listen to. I don't remember which one it was. My favorites are Jim Cornette's drive Through and Jim Cornette's experience, but I also listen to uh, Charting the Territories, uh, which is an excellent history podcast, particularly if you get into statistical analysis and into some really deep history. Uh, Shut Up and Wrestle with Dan Solomon is another one I like. And I also listen to the Wrestling uh, Show Review Podcast, the Mid-South Wrestling Review, and the Mid-Atlantic Wrestling Review. I listen to other podcasts as well, Grilling JR. But those are the history podcasts I, I like the best. And in one of them, they were discussing when someone was the champion. It was because they were drawing the most money, which is true. And the promoters kept the title on them. Because they were drawing the most money. But the time period they were talking about was before the development of the pro wrestling promotional system. So I apologize. I can't remember where I heard that at. But basically, promoting professional wrestling went through several phases in the U.S. And I divided. These phases don't break out cleanly, but I kind of divided them into the phases so you'll see the years will overlap a little bit when I talk about the phases but in general the first phase was from the 1860s to the 1890s and there weren't really promoters as such but most of the people that put up the money to either host the event through a venue were backers or wrestling fans who had money and who wanted to see the matches themselves a good example of this is in 1881 or 80. it's 82, I think. When Joe Acton wrestled Edwin Bibby for they claimed it was the world championship at the time. Some people have attributed it as the American heavyweight championship. But Acton claimed to be the champion of England, probably with some justification more than most people that came to the United States and claimed a championship of a country. He claimed to be the English catches catch can champion, and he had beaten all the top stars in England, so he had as good a claim to that title as uh, anyone. And Edwin Bibby, who had won a bunch of catch matches in the U.S. and had claimed a championship in uh, early 1881. So this match was supposed to, was built for the world title. Later historians have put it as part of the American heavyweight wrestling championship lineage. But anyway... This match is for the championship, and the match is going to take place in New York. So the backers get, I'm sorry, backers get, the backers rent Madison Square Garden. I can't remember if it was Madison Square Garden 2 or 3, but it sat several thousand people. But that match only drew 300 paying fans. And the backers, the wrestling fans who really wanted to see the match, took an absolute bath on that match. And this was one of the reasons why, there were two reasons. Matches were less frequent in the 19th century for travel. It was harder to get to places. For you. It took a while to get enough backers interested to see a match to be able to host a match. So you had to try to build up these matches and if they were legitimate contests there was a high chance that the wrestlers were going to come out with some injuries even if they weren't seriously injured from the match so for all of those reasons you will see the 19th century the wrestlers are pretty inactive and generally when they go to a place and they spend a few weeks there and they have four or five matches it's because they're working some of them or all of them It's unusual for you to see more than three, four, five legitimate contests in a year in the 19th century. Lewis probably did it a couple times, but it it was unusual. So it's also harder to attract the backers to get back to our topic for today, promoting professional wrestling. And the second phase, I would say, starts about 1885. So again, we have that overlap. The first phase is 1860s to 1890s. The second phase is 1885 to the uh, 1910s. And the reason I go on 1885 is because Parson Davies was the promoter for Evan the Strangler Lewis, not Ed Strangler Lewis, Evan the Strangler Lewis, the original Strangler from Wisconsin. And he was one of the first managers that served as sort of a quasi-promoter. Davies would partner with athletic clubs or buildings in a town. So he didn't promote a town, but he would often partner with athletic clubs or a big building in a town. They wrestled some matches in New York. They wrestled a lot of big matches in Chicago. He had a very good uh, relationship with, I believe it was the Empire Athletic Club, who would later on sponsor a lot of matches of Frank Gotch's. Um, and it could have been an athletic club before them. But he had a good relationship with Chicago. And Parson Davies held a lot of Strangler Evan strangler Lewis's big matches in Chicago because he had that relationship. And they would also use backers. Managers were not ones to really invest their own money into these uh, contests. So they would find backers as well. By this period, though, they're starting to draw bigger crowds. When I say bigger crowds, we're moving out of the hundreds and we're moving into the thousands. So 1,200 fans to 3,000 fans is a pretty good crowd. And Evan Strangler Lewis was drawing those crowds regularly. So usually Lewis would get a a nice payoff and the uh, promoters, even after paying for the venue would also make a little bit of money so it's now it's getting easier to promote these matches but again these matches are still infrequent because a lot of them are contests. a lot of them have a high uh, degree of injury you've also got the weather this is before air conditioning so there are certain places that you can't have wrestling during the summer there's certain places that you have a hard time having wrestling in the winter because it's just hard to get around even with trains But it's getting more lucrative. Mm -hmm. And because it's getting more lucrative, then we start getting into the third phase. And this is around the 19-teens to the 1920s. So you have promoters like Jack Curley that get started in wrestling as these quasi-promoters working with Frank Gotch's management team. Jack Curley was the American manager for George Hackenschmidt during the second Hackenschmidt match in Chicago, and that's where he got his, he was doing a little promoting before, but that's where he really got a taste of how lucrative wrestling promotion can be. Remember, that second Gotch-Hackenschmidt match drew 30,000, over 30,000 fans, and they wouldn't do a crowd like that again until the nineteen thirties with Jim Londes. But because these they're drawing bigger crowds, even before the thirty thousand uh, dollar I'm sorry, thirty thousand dollar, the thirty thousand plus spectators, which drew a lot more than thirty thousand dollars, promoting wrestling starting to get a little bit more lucrative because Frank Gotch is routinely drawing six. To 10,000 fans to his big matches all over the Midwest in Kansas City in Chicago and Des Moines uh, he wrestled some in New Orleans he's drawing big fans so because it's getting more lucrative you have local promoters start taking over the uh, professional re- dedicating themselves and opening professional wrestling companies and most people think That the first guy to do it was Jack Curley in New York. He was the first promoter to take over a major town and become the promoter, followed by Paul Bowser in Boston, followed by, it was Tom Pax in St. Louis after 1924. What people don't know is before Tom Pax, his uncle John Cantos actually promoted wrestling in St. Louis from 1922 to 1924. He had started the promotion, but he decided to become the promoter full-time of Dan Koloff and travel the country with Dan Koloff. So he turned the promotional office over to his nephew, Tom Pax, who held it until he sold his interest to Luthez, and then they eventually merged with Sam Muchnick. But Tom Pax in St. Louis... And you have these major promoters starting to promote in these bigger cities, and that will change wrestling in a significant way. But before I talk about that, let me talk about who I think is actually the first local promoter that I have read that had a dedicated town, which was Lexington, Kentucky, and he also promoted in Louisville. And he only did this from 1913 to 1915. But his name was Jerry M. Walls. And Walls lived in Lexington. I think he had been involved with some horse racing promotion prior to getting into professional wrestling. But he had a connection with professional wrestling. I can't remember if he was a wrestler or if he just knew wrestlers. But he opened a promotion in 1913 in Lexington... And he lured a wrestler by the name of Bob Friedrichs, who most fans know as Ed Strangler Lewis. It was in Lexington in 1913 that Walls suggested Bob Friedrichs change his name, and he changed it to Ed Strangler Lewis as an homage to Evan Strangler Lewis, because uh, Ed Strangler Lewis was also from Wisconsin. He was from Nacusa, Wisconsin. And Walls, as the manager and promoter of Ed Strangler Lewis, promoted those Kentucky towns from 1913 to 1915. After 1915, I can't find where he's promoting wrestling anymore in Kentucky. I can't find any reference to him, although I'm still researching and trying. But I believe he was the first local promoter. And what caused him to leave local promotion was he lost the management. There was never a contract. It was a handshake between them. And Billy Sandow convinced Ed Strangler Lewis to go with him as his manager. And they went to New York to compete in the 1915, the fall version of the 1915 New York International Wrestling Tournament. And when he left... The promotion and went to New York It appears that Walls shut down his promotion And quit promoting But Walls drew lots of big stars To Kentucky to wrestle With Lewis uh, Including William Dimitro They had an American Heavyweight Championship Title switch uh, Two actually And Lexington And they also uh, Attracted some of the bigger names at that time I think I think Joe Stecker might have gone to Kentucky during that time. But most of the big names from the Gotch crew, uh, Jesse uh, Westergaard, Charlie Cutler, uh, Henry Ordman, they all went to Lexington to wrestle with Lewis. So Walls, I believe, actually deserves the credit as the first established local promoter in the United States. That may change. I may find someone else in future research, but right now he's the earliest dedicated local promoter I have found in professional wrestling. So let me talk about what the development of the local promoters and major in major and small cities did to professional wrestling. Professional wrestling was already moving towards becoming a worked exhibition because as I've talked about on several of the podcasts if you go to my website and you've read any of my articles you know legitimate contests between equally skilled wrestlers were often long boring and inconclusive those long boring matches you're talking four-hour draws seven-hour draws Those boring, conclusive matches were really hurting professional wrestling developing into a spectator sport. The four-hour draw at the end of the spring 1915 International Wrestling Tournament killed that. Well, it would have killed the tournament without the Mass Marvel, but it really, really hurt that tournament. And the seven-hour draw between Whistler and Muldoon in the 1880s really hurt the development of the sport as a spectator sport that's why they were drawing in the hundreds almost up into the 1890s Lewis I think Evan Strangler Lewis because he was so vicious and fans always knew they might see something unusual with in an Evan Strangler Lewis match he started drawing fans in the thousands but even though I think Muldoon might have drawn over a thousand fans in New York at one time That seven-hour draw killed fan interest for a long time. He was very inactive through most of the latter part of his career. He spent most of his time on vaudeville because vaudeville demonstrating wrestling and taking part in these uh, stage plays generated a lot more income for him than going out and wrestling in front of 100 fans. He did one match in Los Angeles... It was only in front of like 100 people, but he supplemented his income there by trying to sell his system of working out. But the sometimes inconclusive, long, and boring nature of legitimate contests started already moving the sport into worked exhibitions. That's why you had so many worked matches, even back in the 19th century. And then during Frank Gotch's time, a lot of the matches he took part in were worked. Not all of them. There were a number of legitimate contests he wrestled with Tom Jenkins and George Hackenschmidt and uh, Stanislaus Abisko. But he also wrestled a lot of worked matches with people that he was aligned with in Farmer Burns' wrestling troupe because it was easier on his body and they could put on a good match and draw a lot of fans. And he routinely drew six to 10,000 fans. So let's talk about how the development of the promotional system kind of put the nail in that coffin and really made that become a worked exhibition with the exception of a legitimate contest agreed upon beforehand to settle a promotional dispute, which there were a few. Most often, the only legitimate contests were double crosses. There were more double crosses than there were actually legitimate contests to end a promotional dispute. When these local promoters developed in New York and Boston and St. Louis, they formed weak alliances to control professional wrestling. And usually they did that through controlling either the World Championship once it was. Well, actually, it was the World Championship. They did it through controlling the World Championship. When I say these alliances are weak, I'm not saying the promoters were weak. The promoters, most of the time, were all powerful. In their local promotional area. The alliance was weak because the promoters often turned on each other and they could never really be certain of their partners in these enterprises. So, you had the reason you had so many double crosses in the 1920s and the 1930s, where these promoters kept double crossing each other, kept breaking out of the alliances, and most of the time it was to control the world championship. Because controlling the world championship means you made the most money. It always comes back to money in professional wrestling. The reason things happen the way they do is to put the most amount of money possible in the promoter's pockets and the wrestler's pockets. And they're not going to do things normally that's going to hurt that unless they're really, really angry with each other. But these local promoters, because they wanted to control the championship, they wanted to make sure that the money kept flowing into their coffers, the most important thing, they would get involved in these weak alliances to control the championship. And to control the championship meant that all matches from now on had to be worked exhibitions where the promoters knew who was going to win and who was going to lose. They didn't want a colorless, boring champion winning the championship in a legitimate contest, and then being stuck with somebody who couldn't fill their stadiums, or their arenas, or their convention halls, or the Turnivarian halls. Wherever they were hosting wrestling At in Wichita, they would often draw between six and 10,000 fans, but they're not going to do that if the person at the top of the card is boring. And when I say at the top of the card, realize that this time you could be looking at two matches in a Really big place like New York, you're probably looking at four matches, but you're not looking at the the kind of cards you would see in the '60s and the '70s. You're 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 going to see a two to four match card depending on where you are at. Uh, so once the promotional system developed in the ni- in the late 19 teens, because really Curly was the only one that was really strongly established in the 19 teens. In the nineteen twenties you had a lot more people firmly established. Paul Bowser in Boston, and he would be the longtime Boston promoter. Tom Pax in Saint Louis, and he would be the longtime St. Louis promoter until he was replaced by Sam Muchnick. All these promoters worked together at times to try to maximize their investments and their profits. But when they got mad at each other, they would start, you know, double crossing each other, which the double crosses led to the really the last development in promotion for a while until Vince McMahon took things national. And that was the formation of the National Wrestling Alliance in 1948. This was a strong alliance of promoters, and they were able to exercise a lot more discipline on their members than these loose alliance of local promoters had done in the past where they were constantly double-crossing each other. <clears throat> they also would got themselves in some trouble <laughs> with the U.S. government in the 1950s over antitrust, and there was always a few members that would kind of go off the reservation. But for the most part, the National Wrestling Alliance finally put an end to all the double-crosses in the the late 40s and early 50s. But the major development of local promoters was wrestling was no longer a contested sport. It was now worked exhibitions. And that would get very, very controversial in the 1930s when all the exposés started coming out because some of the people that had got double-crossed on the promotional side like Jack Pfeffer started exposing professional wrestling in the newspapers well one of the big problems and this was an issue even going back into the nineteen hundreds I'm sorry the eighteen hundreds a lot of times the wrestling promoters and wrestlers would work gambling schemes on the wrestling fans or the spectators or people that like to bet on wrestling and this was going on all the way up into the 1930s when the matches were works. And when that was exposed, that brought a lot of official heat in the form of athletic commissions and governments really looking at wrestling like they never had before. By the time I was watching wrestling in the 70s, I was surprised to know that they used to gamble on it because there was, nobody was gambling on wrestling. Even the people that believed it didn't gamble on it. Because I think even the true believers, the people who wanted to believe it, just like you want to believe a good TV show, a good movie, or anything else, from an entertainment standpoint, they knew, I don't know what's going on, but something's going on. So nobody ever wanted to bet me on David Von Erich versus Harley Race. But in the 30s, that was common. And by the 30s, wrestling has worked. And that caused a lot of heat for promoters and wrestlers that's also why pro wrestling has the very checker reputation it does throughout most of history so I, th- I think I've probably covered that about as in-depthly as it can be covered I'll just state that the, the long inconclusive and boring nature of legitimate contests led the sport towards becoming a worked exhibition and the development of the promotional system made it a worked exhibition at that point. So I could end the podcast there, but I actually want to recommend everybody to watch a PBS special that I just recently viewed on St. Louis Wrestling. And my son and I are going to review the things I gave him uh, to watch on the next Uh, podcast and I'll probably have him watch this as well but wrestling in St. Louis was a little different than a lot of places in the country because it was still covered like a sport they didn't say it's legitimate they didn't cover it in the newspaper also by making fun of it either they didn't talk about the legitimacy or the lack of legitimacy of professional wrestling they just reported straightforwardly in the newspaper, here's the card for tomorrow night, and then they would report the results the next day. And I, I think they may have been one of the few that was, I know Memphis, uh, they promoted, they reported results as well. In fact, they showed some of the matches uh, results on the news. But because Sam was friends with a lot of the sports writers, they would also occasionally do public interest pieces on professional wrestlers. Or Sam Muchnick. Sam Muchnick would make the paper every few years. One of his old friends from his sports writing days would have uh, meet him at lunch and then just write up what was going on. But this documentary that was produced by our PBS station here in St. Louis, Channel 9, is called Head Over Heels, Remembering Wrestling at the Chase. I will have a link for it in the show notes, which you can uh, view at kensermanjr.com slash episode 8. But you could also just... It's a YouTube, It's a video on YouTube. Channel 9 uploads those on YouTube. And it's called Head Over Heels, Remembering Wrestling at the Chase. And I had it on the other day when I was watching my grandson. And they brought up one of the episodes from the late 50s in the Coruscant Room at the Chase. And they were talking about how it was sponsored by Bush Bavarian. And my wife and I had both forgot that's what... Bush Beer was called in the 70s, even then still, in the 70s was still called Bush Bavarian. I I don't know that that means anything to you, but we found it interesting from a local history standpoint. It's one of those things that we had forgotten over time. But most people, most, let's make a generalization generalization I can support. Lots of St. Louisans, revolved their Saturday or Sunday plans around professional wrestling's wrestling at the Chase show. Not everyone, but a lot of people either got up early to go to church so they could get home to watch it at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, or they watched the Saturday show. Now, by the time I was old enough to start watching it, the Saturday show was on like two o'clock in the morning, so most people watched it Sunday morning. And I would get up early and go to church so I could get home to watch wrestling at the Chase. But if we were going down to the lake, I would stay up till 2 o'clock in the morning, watch professional wrestling, and then get about 4 hours sleep before I had to go down to the lake the next day. That's how much of a fan I was. I didn't miss an episode probably from 1979 until it went off the air in 1983. And when WWE took over that time slot, I was. It was just like Black uh, Saturday for Georgia Championship Wrestling Watchers. That was the same way it was in St. Louis. What is this garbage and where is our wrestling at the chase? But that wouldn't have happened probably. Well, I don't want to say anything I can't support because maybe Sam saw the writing on the wall and he knew what Vince McMahon was going to do and that's why he retired when he did. I think it had a lot more to do with his wife passing away that same year that's why Sam because he had been thinking about retiring for a while so maybe if Sam was here Vince would have eventually got it anyway I don't think so because the one thing that no one had was Sam's relationship with the Coplers who own Channel 11 but the problem was Sam had retired in the beginning of 1982 and the people that took over Wrestling at the Chase and the St. Louis Wrestling Club didn't have a clue as to what made St. Louis special why Sam was so zealous about not allowing some of the silly stuff that went on in other promotions happen in St. Louis and within a year and a half they had ruined a perfectly good promotion and we lost our Wrestling at the Chase but this is a documentary that covers a lot actually is in the 50s and 60s things I had never seen and then the 70s, and they interview a lot of wrestling fans that used to go down to The Chase and watch it and realize And next year, Wrestling At The Chase will have been off the air for 40 years. So I was 14 when it went off the air. It'll have been off the air for 40 years, but there's still lots of wrestling fans who went down to Wrestling At The Chase. They interviewed some fans that were there in the 50s and 60s where you, know, you would have celebrities in town would want to be seen ringside there in the Coruscant Room at Wrestling at the Chase. And it just gives a nice overview of why it was so different from so much of what you see through the rest of the the country. You know with the exposés in New York it really had a hard time in New York but St. Louis never had that and it was always well respected because of Sam Muchnick. So I really highly encourage you to check out head over heels remembering wrestling at the chase it's about an hour long so just a regular uh documentary length and i think you'll really if you're a pro wrestling fan i think you'll really enjoy it well that's it for this episode of it was almost real the pro wrestling history podcast in the next episode which we will release on monday september 12th caleb will rejoin me to discuss frank gotch's toughest opponent tom jenkins no one held more victories over Gotch than Tom Jenkins. His matches with Hackenschmidt were the most celebrated, but his toughest opponent was Tom Jenkins, who would go on to teach self-defense and wrestling at West Point. KenzermanJr.com is the place to check out the show notes for today's episode. You can also see what I'm working on currently in a list of books I have written if you are interested in digging deeper into this era of professional wrestling. I thank you for listening today. I would also be grateful if you would rate this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. That, helped tr- that helps tremendously with keeping the podcast visible so people who have never heard of it can discover it. If you've already done this, thank you so much. And if you would like to comment on this episode or ask a question, please go to kensermanjr.com, find the contact page at the top navigation, and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, everybody, I promise Caleb will be back and it'll be a little less frantic, probably. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.